we have a new sponsor on the podcast, folks. It's Quant Wrestling. Super pleased to be working with these folks. They provide analytics on the sport of wrestling, something that's desperately needed in our great sport. Quant does this by tracking over 550 analytics throughout a match and can provide different outcomes such as how long between the time a guy shoots to when he finishes. How often does David Carr start a period on top and end a period on top? Quant can also predict with 82% accuracy match outcomes at the Division I level. You can see all this data in the Quant app, which is available in the Apple App Store as well as the Google Play Store. There are two versions of the app, the Division I app, where Quant is tracking all of their data points on Division I wrestlers on your behalf. Then they also have a youth and high school app where parents and wrestlers watch their matches and input the data into the Quant app, and Quant does all the analytics on the back end. The Quant Wrestling apps are available in the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. That's Quant, Q-U-A-N-T, Q-U-A-N-T. The first two weeks are free, but if you use the discount code WCML, you'll get an additional two weeks for free. That's Quant Wrestling, a new sponsor here on Wrestling Changed My Life. Now let's get to the show. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast presented by Quant Wrestling. Download the Quant Wrestling app in the Apple and Google Play Store, Q-U-A-N-T. Use the discount code WCML for two weeks free. Our guest today is UFC and MMA legend John Fitch. John is one of the pioneers in MMA, a career he embarked on after wrestling at Purdue where he was a walk-on, and now John is one of the most respected and legendary UFC fighters of all time. It was an honor to have John Fitch on the podcast. Please consider checking out John's book, The Weight Cut Bible, Learn How an MMA Fighter Loses 30 Pounds in Eight Weeks, as well as his book, Failing Upward, Death by the Ego, two books John has recently authored. He also has a website where you can find all the information about his podcast, John Fitch Knows Nothing. You can find his website, johnfitch.net. Fan of the Week goes to our good friend Terry Paulson. That's at the champion MS on Twitter, a husband, a father, a friend, and a patriotic American citizen. God bless you, Terry Paulson. Thank you so much for your support of the podcast. Now let's get to the episode with the great John Fitch. Awesome. John Fitch, welcome to the podcast, sir. Good to be here, man. Yes, sir. One of my uh, longtime listeners told me to reach out to you, and he, he's an avid listener of your, your podcast. Yeah, no, that's it's, uh, it's so cool that he did that. I'm glad we're here, <clears throat> and uh, we're going to talk a little bit of life, a little bit of wrestling, a little bit of UFC. Mm-hmm. Let's start here, man. You get to Purdue as a freshman and you decide to walk on the wrestling team. How did this uh, idea to kind of make that leap to the D1 level germinate? How did it go from there? I, I spent my entire, my entire childhood thinking that I was going to play pro football. So I, you know, I started playing in the fourth grade contact football. Like I spent my summers, like always practicing and doing whatever. I started wrestling in fourth grade also. But wrestling was like 
just I was super competitive and it was just a way to just like to battle with people. So it was like my way of like getting that out, that fight out. And it was always the number two sport for me. Like I prioritized football first. But yeah, I, I uh, my freshman year of high school, I weighed about 168 pounds. And instead of cutting the three pounds and wrestling 165, where I, I would have beat the, the, the guy in the spot, I wrestled up at 171 because I didn't want to lose weight because I was, I was supposed to play football, you know? And then, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I had a, a senior ahead of me that year. So like, I kind of screwed myself a little bit, but whatever. And, uh, you know, um, when my senior year came around of high school, like I wasn't getting, you know, uh, letters and knocks on the door to come play football. I had little interest in small schools, but I didn't want to compete at a small school. You know, I wanted to go to, to a, a D1 school to compete. And I, I kind of had to make the decision. I was like, well, do I walk on to the football, a football team, a D1 football team, and maybe get cut, maybe get laughed off the field, maybe uh, work my ass off and I play kickoff team my senior year? Or do I walk on to a D1 wrestling team and potentially have an opportunity to win a national title? And I was like, you know, I'd, I'd rather do the, the hard work and try to win the wrestling title. And did anyone fight you on this? Like any of your friends or family and they say, Hey, you're crazy. No. That they were all yeah. in support of it. No, nobody fought me on it. Um, you know, my mother, of course, questioned a few times. She's like, you know, we don't, you don't need to do this. You don't need to wrestle because she would come and visit and I would face would be beat up or I have cauliflower ear starting or whatever. She's like, you don't, we don't need to do this. You don't have to wrestle. You don't have to earn a scholarship. Like, I was like, no, mom, this is what I want to do. This is why I'm here. So where did, it's like, were you always just someone who dreamed big and thought about being on the big stage, like D1 football or, or Big Ten wrestling? And, and if so, like, who were some of your yeah. early sports idols? Um, like Dick Buckus. I always loved Dick Buckus. Heck um, yeah. Uh, you know, like I was around, you know, my childhood was like the 86 Bears and, you know, those guys. Um, so Mike, Mike Singletary. Uh, um, we used to love the old like Steelers linebackers and whatever from, you know, the iron curtain guys. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was the middle linebackers that I, that I really liked. And that was the position that I played. And I thought it was the coolest one. Cause I, I got to run the defense. Like I told everyone what to do. And then like, I, I got to read the plays and like talk to the quarterback. And it was just, you're like the, you're like the quarterback of the defense kind of. And that was just. You know, once I found that position in junior high, I, I, I really started falling in love with it because before I was like nose tackle in grade school <laughs> and whatever. And that was just because I was fast and I would mess with the linemen and I would get past them easy. It wasn't like I was powering through them. I'd like I'd line up pointing one direction and run the other direction and they would have no idea where I went. And was football like a big thing in your town, like Friday Night Lights type of deal? Not on that level. Certain schools definitely had um, big showings, you know, but we had wrestling teams in the area too. Belmont High School was one of the teams in our area, in our conference that, you know, they sold out their, their basketball stadiums. Like when it was, wow. when they had big matches against a big team or whatever. And so you, you kind of have this dream of, of greater things you get to Purdue. Talk us through like the first couple months transitioning into the team. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I had too much fun my freshman year. I think my first two years were, I think, too much fun. It wasn't until my third year, which is my sophomore year of eligibility, that I got like my ass just handed to me. And I was like, okay, I need to like, I need to make a lot of changes because I, I was working hard during the season, you know, and I did the summer workouts and stuff like that, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a, serious commitment that like the top guys would make you know the, mm -hmm. the guys that like uh um uh kale sanderson type level you know those guys those guys were in season 24 hours a day seven days a week through their entire college career and what and was I, the turning I, point that flipped it for you you said you got you got had like a Took a pretty hard loss or? Yeah, I had a bad season. It was my first year at one, I think it was 172, I think it was the weight. So it was the first year I had to really like cut and maintain weight because I was always wrestling up in high school. Um, I did my redshirt year at Purdue at 180, 184, I think. And 
um, like it wasn't hard to make, you know? And mm -hmm. it was like, we only did, we only did the unattached tournaments. So it was like, you had like weeks to prepare for that one match. Um, and then my first year of eligibility, my freshman year of eligibility, uh, the senior quit at 197. So me and another freshman, you know, battled to, to fight at 197. So we didn't, you know, we were both 10 pounds underweight. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I got, I got some varsity time, I think I even lettered that, that year, but, um, no, I think I lettered three years, but like, you know, I got experience. I got to travel around, but I didn't have to make weight. And then that, that first year I had to make weight. I didn't do it right. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I was wrestling a lot of big guys in the big 10, you know, I wrestled, 17 guys that year that were ranked in the top 20. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, that Big Ten grind like in January, February is ruthless. Yes, it was bad, you know, and it's just <laughs> uh, so like I was struggling with that stuff and just I was I was wrestling with tough guys, too. I wouldn't like their their their, you know, scrubs. But yeah, I went I went I won eight matches. and I lost 31. <sighs> Bro, yeah. that can that can either make or break you. And obviously it was a big inflection point for you. Like what changed after that? That was, that was the, yeah, it was the make it or break it. I was like, should I get off the pot moment? <laughs> you know, <clears throat> excuse me. but it's like, what the hell are you doing here? It's like, you're, you're not getting the most out of wrestling because you're, you're goofing around too much in the off season and you're, you're one of the most serious guys on the team, but just because you're the most serious guy on the team doesn't mean that like you compare to the guys who are at the top level on other teams. Cause we were, you know, middle of the pack at Purdue in the big mm -hmm. 10, you know, which is still top 25 in the country, but you know, that, that those top 10 teams, they're killers. And if you're not getting after it every single day, like you're not going to compete. So, you know, I had to, I had to switch that mentality and I think, um, I think I was reading, I think I read something about, uh, Sanderson uh, mm. and what his schedule looked like and what he did. And it was, it was just like school workout, a little bit of girlfriend time, family. And then that was it. I was like, okay. So like no bars, you know, he's not chasing <laughs> girls. He's got one at home. Um, yeah, like just the, uh, the amount of time that I was kind of wasting because it's like, suck it up and do the wrestling thing and do it all out or stop and go have fun and, and actually, you know, get, have an opportunity to actually chase girls around. Cause you know, a wrestling season, cause I trained hard during the wrestling season, but it was like the beginning and the end of the year and the summer that it was a little kind of, you know, I was lifting and stuff and drilling a little bit, but it was not the same as like the last, the last three years where I really cranked it up. So at that point where you just was all consumed, you know, training 12 months a year type of deal? Uh, pretty much. Like it was, um, you know, I still had fun. You know, I still had my weekends to have fun, but like I was, I was not going out four nights a week. I was, um, you know, wrestling hard on, on the weekdays, you know, uh, when it wasn't time, you know, when we weren't in season, because that's a big part of it. Some guys, you know, they'll drill once a week but they're not getting after it once or twice a week, you know, you get after it once or twice a week and then drill, you know, three to four times a week. Like it, it just needs to be a regular thing you're doing all the time. And, um, you know, I started doing that more towards the end and things started turning around. In your senior year, like talk us through some of the highlights there, like a 21 and five record. It looked like something like something like that. Uh, I think it was, like it was, yeah, 20 something. And I can't even remember, but, it might have been 14, but Big Ten is pretty good. I, yeah. I, uh, highlights were, you know, I being, I beat a, a ranked guy, uh, who's like ranked like 17th at, um, it was like a, I can't remember what the name of that, uh, tournament was. It's in like at Slippery Rock and, uh, it's up in Pennsylvania. Matt Town is it Matt Town? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was Matt Town. Yeah. I think I placed, but I started, I placed it a few things. I got like fourth and third at a few tournaments. I had a, uh, uh, a one point close match with the guy who was ranked number two at the time. I didn't even know it. The coaches didn't tell me until afterwards. We we're at a tournament and they're like, you know who that guy was? I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and was Tom Erickson coaching there then? 
Tom was Tom was uh, coaching there, and that's why one of the reasons I got that was the biggest reason I got the fighting because Tom was around, and then I got exposed to that uh, environment a little bit. It was kind of an alien thing to me because I, I watched some of the earlier stuff in like ninety three, ninety four, but then when it stopped becoming easily available to watch on the uh, pay per views, because you know we didn't have the internet really back then, right? And uh, yeah, so I had like a big gap of watching fights and then I met Tom and Tom was great, man, because he was just a huge 300 pound man, 6'3", 300 pounds, super quick, agile, and uh, it's a loud, booming voice. And you get that guy yelling in your corner. It's always nice. The big cat, baby. Big cat. Yeah. Dude, tell us about uh, just some of your early stories, early interactions with, with uh, Tom Erickson and kind of him exposing you to fighting. Well, he used to have um, <clears throat> guys come into town and train with him. So Mark Coleman, who, uh, wow, you know, first heavyweight champ for the UFC, also uh, Ohio State champ, national champ. Uh, he would come into town. He brought one of his guys, his big tall guy. I can't remember his name. Wes Sims, that's it. Wes would come with him. Uh, Ian Freeman was an English fighter. Uh I think he beat like Frank Mir a long time ago. And um, he came out to learn a little wrestling because they don't have any wrestling in England, mm -hmm. you know. And then Gary Goodrich would come down and Tom fought Gary once and then they became friends and they started working together. You know, Tom, Tom would learn to stand up from Gary and Gary would learn some wrestling from him. And, you know, working with those guys kind of opened my eyes up. Cause like, especially like when I was working with Gary, because Gary didn't have any wrestling and I was like, like this guy's making a lot of money per fight i was like i can take him down pretty easy and like when i take him down there's nothing he can do i was like mm -hmm. hmm. i was like this is interesting maybe i could do this uh you know maybe i could try this too who knows and then i just kept doing those workouts because they were something else to do to lose weight stay in shape you know the off season season stuff you know i could get into the gym and get a workout in and learn something and not have the monotonous like regular day in day out same thing workout and so those workouts were going on at purdue at the time like all those legends they would come in yeah down into the wrestling room and you know after practice or whatever they would come and they would uh have their own little workout or whatever and so a few guys would get to come in and, and work who were interested um they might even come in gary might have come into a couple practices to wrestle like with the heavyweights and get you know in shape and pushed around and stuff and were those guys fighting in USC or Pride back then? They were fighting in Pride at the time. God, those yeah, are legendary was, stories, man. Yeah, that was like 2000. It was right around the time Coleman won the, that Grand Prix at the time. It was right around that time. But yeah, I mean, like, technically, Coleman was my first. He didn't even remember this, but he was my first jiu-jitsu instructor. Really? He was the first guy that was, like, teaching me. He was. I remember he was trying to teach me a triangle. And he was, like, or trying to teach me how to open the guard or do something. And like, I was trying to do it. And he's like, nope, nope, you're too weak. You're just too weak. <laughs> I was like, I was like, there's no like technical, like correction. He's like, ah, you just can't do that one. There's too, too weak. weak. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, so you were one of like the early jujitsu practitioners, even. I mean, you think about back in the, that 2000, 2001 era, not many mm -hmm. dudes were practicing Brazilian jujitsu. No. Um, well, I, that's the thing. We didn't have jiu-jitsu anywhere like people who said they knew jiu-jitsu they were just talking off their ass they were uh a judo club we had some friends on the judo club mm -hmm. so they had some groundwork and whatever so like, we had dvds and not even dvds we had vhs tapes you know vhs tapes and other fights and then you know we would try to figure things out and then we would try them with the judo guys and you know we would work on their groundwork together and that stuff but it was like it was terrible it was, it was hard that's like one of the reasons why i moved from indiana um, after that year of grad school, I moved from Indiana to California because there just wasn't anywhere to, to train really. And I didn't even start putting the gi on until um, like I had been out in California for a year already because I, I was like, you know, we don't fight in a gi. I'm not going to put the gi on. I don't see the point. I don't want to do that sport. Uh, but I would go and I would go to the practice without my gi on and I would work with people and not do the grips. Um, but then Dave Camarillo came and we went no gi one day. He came to our, our team practice and 
he got on top and like, I could not get him off me. He was like 160 pounds dripping wet and wow. I could not get up. And like in a five minute round, I wasn't able to get up. He was like, just focusing on controlling and staying on top. And I think he was trying to prove a point. And uh, he did. Cause I was like, okay, if there's, there's something to this, if this little guy can, can keep me on the mat, you know, like nobody else in here, the heavyweights can't keep me down. Like I'm getting up. So I went and got a gi and, and put one on. And then, yeah, I was his first white to black belt. Wow. How long did that, what was that progression? It was fast for me. Like by IG, IBJJF standards, it's not legal now because they have new rules, but um, it was only a four and a half year process for me. Wow. From when I first started putting on the gi and, and training gi like all the time. But, you know, it's cheating because I had a year of fighting or two years of fighting already and mm -hmm. or a year, half, two years of fighting already and wrestling for, you know, since I was nine. So it wasn't like I was starting from zero. Dude, is there anything more humble than going to jujitsu and just seeing some of these guys that look like like coders or like chess players, but they're just masters in jujitsu? It's crazy mm -hmm. how effective it is. Yeah. Yep. So what was like the jumping off point to where you were thinking about doing MMA to when you like had your first fight? Um, I think my senior year of uh, my senior year of wrestling, my senior year of college, because, you know, I had to do my observation stuff. I was studying to do uh, become a teacher. So first semester, you have to do observation. Second semester is student teaching. So I did my observation stuff. And then like pretty early on, I just didn't like the vibe and the feel I was getting from the schools and the school systems and how the teachers were uh, enjoying their jobs and the kids and just, you know, the rules and the way things were shaping up, just it didn't sit right with, well with me. You know, like it didn't seem like the teachers had any real authority over their curriculum or what they were teaching um the the lessons all seemed like just basic stupid memorization stuff um they weren't actually learning anything or, or critically thinking through anything the uh pe classes were stupid activities that the kids didn't want to do they didn't want to learn and the teachers didn't want to teach so it just seemed like a lot of just wasted energy and space and i was like i don't want to get sucked into this mm -hmm. You know, um, and I started thinking, well, you know, like I still want to compete. You know, that was a big, a big part of it was like, I just still wanted to compete. And um, I had missed half of my junior year because I, I, I tore up, uh, not meniscus, but my um, MCL, MCL, what is, which one was it? PCL, PCL, posterior cruciate ligament, the one that doesn't need the surgery. I tore that. So I, I missed half the season. And um, I couldn't get like the medical red shirt because I had wrestled too much. <clears throat> so I was like, man, I was like, I'm just starting to get good. Like my junior year, I had a winning season, you know, senior year, it was starting off good. I was looking good. And I was just like, I don't want to not compete. Like, I don't want to graduate and then go start working and then not compete anymore. So I started thinking, it's like, well, what, what can I do to compete? And there was three things that I was looking at. One was these, like, they're kind of new at the time, but they're like these geo races, where like you like run for a long time in the mud and you bike for a long time. And yeah. Climb some shit. Like I was like, Hmm, this could be fun. Maybe I could do that. Maybe that'll be my, my thing that I do. Uh, then I was thinking about, you know, maybe I should just keep wrestling and try to make uh, a, a national team or Olympic team or something like that and just see what happens there. Uh, and then I was like third, well, I guess I could try the fighting thing that, that Tom's doing. It's like, and then as the year went on and progressed, I had little things that happened that, um, made me realize that certain things wouldn't work like the geo racing things like hell of expensive just to <laughs> afford the equipment to be able to do it to practice I was like well you know maybe <laughs> maybe some other time uh the wrestling we had uh, uh upperclassman named tim Durlin who came back and he had he had been spending his time doing that trying to make a a, a national team since he graduated he was a senior when i was a, a red shirt and so like four years later he's still broke 
his like body's broken, beat up. He had his ears were all messed up. He had just gotten back from one of the tournaments and it was like his best tournament. He still only got like sixth place or something. Yeah. And <clears throat> he's like getting married and they're going to have to live in his mom's basement. And I was just like, man, I was like, that's brutal. I was like, he's so beat up. Yeah. He's like, he's works. I know he's like a super hard worker and he's a super nice guy. And he like, he works hard at everything. And I was like, man, like that's a struggle. I was like, I don't know if I want to struggle that much and not have anything to show for it. You know, like Mm -hmm. right away. I was like, I could try the fighting thing and these guys at least get paid. So, you know, that kind of started shaping my mind up towards, yeah, you know, that's what I'm going to do when I graduate is I'm going to, I'm going to go fight. And then I graduated that summer and I fought, I think in like June, no, July was the first fight. It was July. Bro. What did people say in that era when you said you were going to be an MMA fighter? What was the look <laughs> you got? It was, that was the thing though. It was like, nobody knew what it was. Like they had no idea. Like, yeah, I'm going to fight no holds barred. I'm going to fight MMA. I'm going to fight in a cage. You're like, what? Like, you know, that UFC stuff, you ever seen the guys in the cage? You're like, what? Like, you have to explain it to them. And because the, the, the internet still wasn't that developed then it wasn't like I could pull out Google and, and Google it and show it to anybody. <clears throat> but yeah, I, I fought for three years before I like told my parents. Wow. Cause I was like, how, how am I going to explain this? I was like, yeah, mom, I'm not going to get a job with my college degree. I'm going to go fight people in a cage all over the world for hundreds of dollars. So how'd you say, like, what was the reason you told them they moved to California? <clears throat> well, I didn't have any student loans. I didn't have any debt. I had a little bit of money and I was like, I'm just going to go to California. Cause I want to go to California. And uh, I told them that I found a gym, which was, which is semi true that, that was, that was going to let me teach wrestling classes out of, and I was going to make money teaching wrestling classes and uh, train at the gym. And then, you know, just, experience California for a little bit and they're like all right kind it's kind of like my you know graduate college and then I, I go backpacking in Europe yeah for a year or something so I'm gonna go I'm gonna go teaching wrestling in California for years see what happens I mean the fact that you could fight for that long without having your parents know just shows you how underground it was I mean yeah. and when people say those were the dark days of of MMA and UFC I mean what was it like going to some of those early smoker fights and just like what were the conditions so I I fought seven times before I'd ever sparred around what <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> so you just get in there and go for it I didn't yeah I, I was just like I don't I didn't know uh I didn't have we didn't have a ring and everybody spar with didn't have equipment so we're just like it's a fight I just you know just go in and throw it didn't work out that well the first one especially um but yeah so you know i didn't i didn't show up to the the first fight with the with the cup because i I thought it was like wrestling you don't Mm -hmm. wrestle with a cup you know i didn't have a coach or corners with me i thought it was again it was like a wrestling tournament or something you just showed up to we we had i had maybe 14 fights 13 fights before i'd ever signed a contract you know, it was just like word of mouth or, you know, phone call. Somebody talked to somebody and set it up. And, uh, <laughs> there was times when uh, we would we would drive. I, me and Brian Ebersaw, we drove uh, from, uh, you know, Indiana, Illinois over to uh, Iowa and Minnesota. And we were just like looking for fights. We, we, we were seeing if the promoter had anybody for us. And they're like, yeah, we got somebody for you. They had us weighing on a scale in their in their hotel bathroom. And then I didn't even see the guy until like they're announcing us in the ring. Dude, it's it's just uh it's hard to believe, but it's not because I so I grew up uh near the military fighting system. And my mm-hmm. my second cousin, Steve Rusk, so who was uh you know big with Tim Sylvia back then and that mm-hmm. whole system. So I would go in and teach wrestling on Saturdays. Well, I did five fights and the amateur fights were at a strip club on Thursdays where if you fought, you got in the strip club for free. It was called Amsterdam's in Davenport. And that was our way to just get in the strip club for free back then. And we had five amateur fights. It was like ridiculous. And so five bucks on the cover. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So how long were you doing these kind of things before you moved to California? I I, I freaking cornered a guy in uh, somewhere in Indiana, I think maybe. And they had, it was like a handmade ring, like with ropes and duct tape and two by fours and shit on the ground in the bar. Right. It wasn't, a, it was probably, you know, they couldn't have fit 250 people in that place. And it was just in the dance floor was the, was the ring. 
And one of the guys I was cornering, like we're up there and he's smoking a cigarette in the back with everybody warming up. I'm just like, what is going on? And the other guy that I was there to corner with, like he like changed it from a fight into a grappling match. (laughs) You know, why, why they're in the back? Like, Oh yeah. I don't want to throw punches. Can we just have a grappling match? And that, um, yeah, man, that was, that was wild, wild times. Like you could go and guys brought their own small gloves to wear guys would fight once and then let us, let their buddy borrow the gloves to fight with. You know, you could have three guys wearing the same pair of gloves in the same night. You'd have events where there was, you know, 20, 30 fights and you're fighting until three in the morning. You know, there are fights where I've seen guys wrap their knuckles with duct tape. Like they wrap their hands with duct tape, put the glove on. And because there's no commission, there's nobody overlooking anything. I fought in Chicago once and the, the, there's no oversight. So like the promoter didn't put the pay for the fighters in an escrow. He was assuming that he was going to make enough at the door that he would be able to pay everybody out. Well, like that didn't happen. Nobody showed up. So like he didn't have the money to pay anybody, he wrote a bunch of bad checks. I was going to say, how often did you fight and not get paid back then? Uh, me only once, but it was, it was not that uncommon. Yeah. There were times when, uh, <clears throat> yeah, guys would get home and their checks wouldn't be good. A lot of guys would sit around and wait till like two or three hours later to see if they get cash from the guy. You know, it was like, give me the concessions cash. Give me whatever. It's like, I'll take a hundred bucks less. Just give me cash. <laughs> Yeah. Wild days. So how long were you fighting before you decided to move to San Jose and join AKA? I uh, fought basically over a little over a year. It's like I, I, uh, that was about a year. So I graduated 2002 and I, I, I won a scholarship that paid for a year of grad school. So I got my um, tuition paid for, and then I got room and board. So I got like a $3,000 check at the beginning of each semester. So like I was living large, (laughs) I was living large that year, at least at the beginning of the uh, school year or the beginning of the the semesters. But um, yeah, I took a light load and I just, I worked with the wrestling team and I started fighting, traveling around. I fought in Mexico. Um, Yeah, that was a crazy trip. Cause like we, we went down somewhere, landed the border town. I got into a car with, three Mexican people I've never met before. And they drove me to Monterey. Dude. <laughs> like, like we had, they spoke a little bit of English, but like thinking about it now, like I had no idea what I was like. I didn't know those people. I didn't know any cars in front of us behind us. Like we were just driving like endless, nothing for like hours. And I'm just like, okay. See, those could have been cartel people. You, you yeah, have no idea. hundred percent. Could have been cartel, but I was like, I'm broke. Where are they going to get money from me? Right. <laughs> so who did you live with when you went to AKA? And were like some of the elite guys we know now training there? Or was it in the early stages? It was early stages. Like Josh Thompson was there. Bobby Southwick was there. Uh, Trevor Plangley was coming to town regularly at that time. Um, I guess BJ had already left. He was there for a little bit before I got there. Mm-hmm. Frank was around a little bit, but it was like on his way out started doing his own thing. <clears throat> um, Swick, Mike Swick was there already. Uh, but yeah, when I moved out, I moved. Yeah, that's a funny story too. It's like, I just found a house on Craigslist. I was finding houses to rent on Craigslist that were close to the gym. So like I found a bunch of houses that were like a mile away. And then one, only one allowed dogs. They didn't care if I had dogs. So that was the winner. And like, I scheduled it. I sent my deposit. I, I never talked on the phone with these people. I'd never seen a picture of them. Never seen a picture of the house. I just had an address and they told me I had a room. So, uh, yeah, I showed up, everything worked out, but that could have been a scam too. Dude. So many of these things could have been missteps and, uh, yeah. it all worked out. Like did, did the guys who you mentioned, did they know you were coming or did you just show up one day? Uh, no, like we, uh, I had, uh, the guy who's running the household and taking the payments or whatever, he, he put the ad up. So I was corresponding with him back and forth. But like, once I, I mean, like, I don't need to, like, once I set a date, like I'm coming on this day, here's the deposit. I'll see ya. Like, <laughs> that means I'm going to be there on that day. And he's like, he's like, I didn't know if you're going to show up. 
you know, you said you were, but like, yeah, I showed up and uh, he was kind of surprised because he thought I would have like wanted more info. But like, I was just so, so focused on like just being out there and getting started. Like I didn't really care. Talk us through some of the early, uh, early fights you had with the UFC and what, what that organization was like. Oh man, it was, um, it was cool at the beginning. Like I never like I never liked Dana. I never liked the way Dana treated fighters. I don't think he should ever be talking down or disrespecting your athletes in, in any way like that, especially when they don't work for you. Like <laughs> you're technically supposed to work for them. How often did that happen? What's that? Like talking down on fighters and that kind of thing. Um, well, I mean, there you always see it in the you always see it in the news. Yeah. And it's always because there's a contract issue or they, they it's usually because they offered a guy a title fight for for crap money or crap circumstances. And they're like, no, I would like this. And they're like, oh, I guess you don't want it. And then they'll go publicly and be like, no, this, this guy isn't tough. He doesn't want it. You know, they try to goad you into uh, selling yourself short. Um, but yeah, in the beginning, you know, there was the uh, and that was the thing they were pushing. It's like, we're all in this together. We're all a team. We're all family. You know, trying to get everybody to work together and make sacrifices to help build the company. But at the end of the day, like they're not taking care of the uh, the fighters in the back end, like the guys who help build the company. Like they're not looking out for those guys at all. And is that some of the things you guys are fighting in that antitrust lawsuit that you're involved with? Uh, partly, it's it's the the conflict of interests that that are are there and the monopoly that they've been able to form because of the conflict of interest you know having uh control of exclusive contracts and controlling the titles and the ranks it's just such a conflict of interest like it's impossible for anybody not just the fighters to compete freely but it's impossible for other promoters to compete freely because you just don't have access to the top guys you don't really see that in other sports either. Like that kind of like that's they, have free, they have free agency. They, and it's like, um, it's, it's, it's illegal. Like no, no sporting organization anywhere will have a setup like that. You will never see the title controlled by the people controlling the contracts. It doesn't happen like the NFL, right? The NFL controls the NFL f- football trophy. The, the, the promoters don't the, the promoter would be the equivalent of the, the teams. Mm-hmm. Right. The owner of the owners of the, the Raiders, they're a promotion. Right. So like they don't control rank. They don't control the title, but they do control exclusive contracts with their athletes. And look how much power they have with the NFL Players Association. Yes. Like that's a force to be reckoned with. You know, yes, like, 100%. Do, do fighters have any kind of organization like that? We have the Mixed Martial Arts Fighters Association. We've been around for over 10 years. We're, we're fighting and doing a lot of stuff on the ground, but. It's just hard to get guys to uh, to see something that doesn't exist yet, you know, because the, the argument is, oh, you're going to make it like boxing. And then there's never a good argument why it shouldn't be like that other than I don't like it. But, you know, you're talking about free agency. You're talking about fighters having the uh, ownership of their of their rank that they earned ownership of their title. Like it shouldn't matter what promotion you're with. If you're the, the the second best guy in the world, you're the second best guy in the world. You should have the right to compete against the number one guy in the world. Right. Regardless of, of promotion. And even if like you know, the UFC is perceived as being more popular than boxing now, boxing may even be making more than UFC. It, it's not though. There's a perception that UFC is more popular, but it's not. They don't do they don't do higher viewership than all of boxing. Really, and all of boxing is global. No, it's not even close. And like who UFC makes more boxers really or well. UFC you, fighters? Boxers make more money on every level. Really, uh, you'll see. You'll see the argument that this is the stupidest argument. They say, "Oh, well, you know, UFC has guys. You know, their first fight in the UFC is is ten and ten, ten to show, ten to win." And you have guys on the undercard of of Mayweather or uh, one of the other guys. Um, who's the other guy that's popular right now? Or whatever, you'll have a guy on a card of Gypsy Kings fight, you know, the heavyweights, and um, <clears throat> they'll only make, you know, $1,500, $3,000. But it's like, it's that guy's second or third fight. Like, his notoriety only generates that much money for him. The person who's fighting in the UFC, that's not their first fight, usually. 
it's like their fifth or sixth, seventh fight, maybe their 10th fight. They've had a bunch of fights already. Look to see how many fights the guys had on the, on the undercards of the other fights. Like they're, they're, they try to compare the wrong things and complain about the wrong things to, to screw people up. They're like, Oh, what's that? Especially in these guys, they're not fighting guaranteed three or four times a year. They're fighting once or maybe twice, you know, and then you're paying out, you know, that's 10 that's before taxes. So you're going to, you're going to pay a big chunk of that's taxes. And then you're going to pay, you know, another uh, 15 to 20% to coaches and managers. Then you got to pay for your food. You got to pay for supplements. You got to pay for massages. A lot of stuff you can write off, but still like you're not, you're not walking away with a ton of money. How big was the Reebok deal in terms of fighter income and that whole situation? Because I mean, the guys at the highest level were making the guys at the championship level were making $45,000 per fight or wearing that when Chuck Liddell back in the day was making 20 grand per patch, Damn. you know, so you have, you have guys making a hundred thousand to, to half a million dollars on sponsorships for the fight, like UFC consolidating into one person and, and, you know, it's a grift and, and they, they purposely did that. Um, you know, guys were making good money back 2008, 2009 and then they started charging the sponsors money to sponsor the athletes so if you want someone wanted to sponsor me they had to pay the ufc 50 to 100 000 first and then they could sponsor me Oof. most companies can't afford that like before you had mom mom and pop shops who would sponsor two or three four guys and they could they could swing that budget they could they could swing the the 15 to you know fifty thousand dollars a year mm-hmm paying those guys for those fights. And that's a lot of money to those fighters. And those fighters would have a few sources of income like that. I used to be able to easily make my show money and sponsorship back then, just from the, those sponsors. So I was making 50 to 60 grand, you know, through sponsors. Like that's already over the amount that the, the Reebok champions are making. And one day that was just gone. Uh, yeah, like it, it got squeezed out over time. At first they started taking 50,000 and then after a little bit longer, it started to be a hundred thousand and then companies started pulling out and be like, we just can't, there's not enough eyeballs on, on this to justify the hundred thousand dollars. So they chased out a lot of the sponsors They chased out the market. And then there was only some slime balls left. (laughs) And then a, a couple of them missed some payments. And then now it's easy for them to villainize sponsors. Look how terrible you fighters have. Look how shitty these sponsors are. They don't even pay you all the time. We're going to take care of everything. And then they absorb uh, all the sponsorships and run everything. And that's, you know, these guys aren't employees. They're, they're you know, it's not, it's not the league because they're not a league. It's one promoter. You have to have multiple promoters in order for it to be a league. Uh, it's, one entity dictating uniform that sounds like an employee wow so there were there was a situation before where you know if you wanted to if you know muscle milk wanted to give you 100 grand that would go right to you but at the end just to even get on the starting spot was 100 grand not even to you yes wow that is like crazy and they famously got in between a lot and anybody who got a big sponsor on the outside like UFC swooped in and got in between them and took it. Uh, Mighty Mouse had an Xbox sponsorship, I think. And who who else was it? Somebody John else Jones had, had Nike. Deal. Remember that? Yeah, but it was but there was one of those things where they only had John John Jones didn't have Nike. Nike had John Jones through the UFC. Mm. Nike cut a deal with the UFC, and they allowed him allowed and they allowed Nike to use John Jones. And they kept the majority of the money and they gave John Jones a little bit. Got it. Rather Even though than, it looked like he was freaking decked out in the Swoosh logo. You that's know, he, they, well, I mean, they give him that stuff, but that's probably all he got. He probably got the shit money and then he got some free gear. And so when you look at like what the World Series of Fighting is doing or even Bellator or um, 1FC, do you see like hope and promise for the future? And like what, what, what's standing out there? They're not competing. Nobody's competing. Everybody's doing their own pro wrestling event. Nobody's trying to compete with anybody else. Everybody's satisfied with the fact that UFC is number one and that 
you know, Bellator is going to take the castaways and everybody else is trying to set them up as a position to be a feeder to the UFC. Like even all, one, even one is not trying to compete with the UFC. You have one, my, my house, one's just laundering money. They're not trying to really? do with anybody. <laughs> they're just, they're just washing money. No shit. Damn. And so they're not, cause like once you declare war in the UFC, they're just relentless and they'll go after you and start holding vents in the same weekend, that kind of thing. Yeah. Though they're, they're like the first guys ever in like sports history to, to, uh, counter, what do you call it? Counter program. Wow. So when like pride used to have events, they would put on an event to counter it. Like nobody ever used to do that. So they're not even like promoting the sport. They're like de-promoting the sport in a way. Yeah, because they don't want you to watch anybody else's stuff. <sighs> Crazy, because you got to think UFC had a lot to do with the rise of MMA, but at the same time, it's such a love-hate relationship. They, man, there's a lot of BS along, along the story of UFC saving the sport. They had more to do with bankrupting and <clears throat> um, invalidating the original UFC than the UFC, original UFC had to do with like failing. You mean pre-Zufa? Yes. That was a whole different um, group of guys, right? Yeah. It's like SCG, I think, UFC. Uh, Those guys, they're the ones who created the sport. They're the ones who pushed things towards sport. They're the ones who pushed the commission and, and the rule changes and everything set up. They're the ones that first brought everything packaged together to the commission to vote on legalization. Like they had it all set, ready to go. Once Nevada, Nevada's commission would have legalized it, it would have been great. They would they would have been able to do shows once a month, every weekend, whatever. They would have had legal uh, way to do that in California or in, in Nevada. Um, but it got voted no. Nobody could understand why. <laughs> okay. Um, but then you understand... Uh, that one of the people on the athletic commission quit the athletic commission, turned around with his brother and bought <laughs> the defunded UFC. No, the Fertitas? Yes. Oh. So on the verge of the UFC breaking through and things changing and going back into a, going towards a you know profitable, awesome scenario, like the Fertitas said no, they blocked it. And then they turned around and made a move to buy it. That's the kind of shrewdness is involved in this. Okay. And there's more to it than that, right? Because the Fertitta's dad, right? Built casinos in Nevada, in, in Vegas. He's really good friends with Harry Reid. You know who Harry Reid is? Mm-mm. He's the senator of Nevada. Okay. Okay. Harry Reid is also really good friends with uh, John McCain. Okay. Okay. And John Remember McCain, McCain was anti- anti-mma and he was pushing the the uh he was pushing the ali act he was pushing mma for the ali act but at a certain point he dropped the attacks on mma right yeah i do remember that yeah he was like the reason there's a lot of weird things that went on behind the scenes behind fertitas their father harry reed and and john mccain and i think they even had something to do with the pay-per-view and getting them off of pay-per-view i think they fully put the chokehold on Zufa, the Fertitas, put the chokehold on the original UFC and stole it. I don't think they saved shit. Dude, the crazy thing is that you're, you, you could, I mean, you probably are right with like the connections and how far it goes with the McCain's and that old money. And like, dude, that's insane. Wow. I mean, we've all heard the story that Ben Askren told on Joe Rogan about how they, you know, royally screwed him over, had him, you know, leave Bellator and then they didn't sign him. And then he was left in yep. the cold and they wouldn't even take a meeting with him, you know? So we've yeah. all heard that. Yeah. Wow. And you know, your story with them is, you know, you were the number two fighter in the world for, you know, five, six, seven, eight years behind GSP. You battled him and you took a single loss and you were dropped. And then you went on to have, you know, another successful career with world series of fighting in Bellator. What well, is, I, I, I had, uh, I had a great fight with GSP, fight of the night, and uh, I got fired after that because we had the video game dispute because they wanted my rights for life for no money, and I I said no, and they they used me as an example to scare everybody else into signing. 
And how many fights good... have you had in the UFC before the GF- GSP fight, just for context? Well, I had, GSP fight was my ninth UFC fight. I won eight, and then I lost to GSP, and then I won the next five. Wow. I won five more after that. And I was supposed to get another title shot after I beat Tiago Alves the second time, which was one of my best performances. Um, and after that fight, they, they took it away. They did, you know, I didn't finish him or they wanted him to win or whatever. They were mad at me. And, uh, I talked back at the press conference too, about them trying to get me to fight Koscheck. So I wasn't a company guy. They were mad at me. So, um, instead of giving me the title shot, they took it away and then set me up to fight BJ in, in, uh, Australia. And then I think I got, I got jobbed on that one too. Cause I, I think I smashed him. They probably should have stopped the fight in the third and, uh, yeah, it was a draw, and then I had to get some shoulder injury stuff taken care of. They passed me over the title shot, and I, I ran back too soon, out of shape. Looked uh, terrible because I had an injury going into the fight, but I needed the money. Yeah. Lost to Hendricks. And when did the video game situation come into play, and what all happened there? That was, that was 2008. So they wanted your rights for life with no, no kind of payment. No payment, no compensation so you said no basically and you were left out of the game but they put you in anyways uh no i i i ended up having to get put in because they they orchestrated the whole thing they knew what they were doing they they because they went to the press right so i wasn't going to sign it i woke up one morning and then my name is in the paper and people are you know making comments so like they ran with the story in the morning john fish has been released from his uoc contract for not signing his video game agreement. And there's a big speech about, we need these guys to be on board. We need to be on our team, whatever bullshit. I was okay with <coughs> saying, screw you. Uh, I'll go fight in Bellator. Not Bellator, but it was Strikeforce at the time. There's there's plenty of fighters there at the time. Like uh, they could have paid comparable, uh, you know, could have fought for a title there. Might've had an easier chance fighting for a title for them rather than keep, keep uh, trying to ask for one from the UFC. So I was fine with it. But then when when they they didn't scare me quick enough into coming back, then they started uh, they fired another one not fired but they they terminated another one of my teammates' contracts, Christian Wallace, because he was coming off a loss, and then they said they were gonna they were gonna cut everybody from our gym and our manager's company as they lost, and they were nobody from our teams or our management company or our team, aka, was gonna ever fight in UFC ever again. Like they put that on me. And then we had a bunch of, you know, like Kane's what? training in the gym. Uh, this know, is like, all the Zinkin guys? But all the Zinkin guys, yeah. So, like, DC, you know, uh, uh, Rockhold, you know, Khabib, all those guys came through, a.k.a. And, like, I would have I would have been on my shoulders, I guess, that they wouldn't have fought. They're full of shit, and I should have known they're full of shit, and I shouldn't have listened to them, and I should have just went with my original – thought was and i should have just fought with strike force but yeah i made the choice to just stay put oh this sounds like the actions of like a criminal mafia group what they do extortion they are bro they're they're monopolistic man when you create a monopolies are inherently evil right when you have one person with all the power one group with all the power everybody else has to take it or leave it that that never generally works out well for everybody right so what are the next steps with the case as we close the loop on that? We are waiting with the class action lawsuit. We're waiting on our decision from the judge, a written decision on class certification. He has so much has said that we're getting class certification for the bout class, not the um, the merchandise class or the royal, like whoever they, I can't remember what their class was, but um, which is confusing to me because I don't see how you can have one without the other. But we're waiting on that and then they will appeal that decision um, and then I'm sure that we will win the appeal and then it'll be time for court, but I don't know if that's going to take a year or five years, or you don't know how long this course stuff. It's just ridiculous. It was they the could drain decision. you guys legally easy, right? I mean, just yeah. continually push it out and use all their resources. Well, and that's what the, that's the idea is they're trying to just keep making, cause they have a money printing machine right now and yeah. they're just keep printing money, printing money. The longer they, they postpone things, the more money they can make on the back end. Eventually maybe even turning the cost over into investors because they're doing the, uh, um, they're going public or they have gone public. Wow. 
So they yeah. may turn the cost over into the investors. Um, but one good thing, one really good thing that has come from this so far is that um, we are, they're putting, they started putting in sunset clauses in their contracts. So you have five years, you sign a contract with them, you'll have five years until it terminates, regardless if you fought your fights or not. Like GSP is still in a contract because he never had a sunset clause. Well, now we've pressured them enough. They've tried to make enough changes so they can't keep getting sued. But I don't think it's big enough to change. But a, a championship clause can be utilized um, by fighters if they if they plan right. So like you sign that contract five years after your first fight with them, your con your your promotional agreement's over. So if you you know fight once a year. <laughs> you know, or you time that contract to like, you're close to a title and you win a title, you can fight once a year until you're close to that, that termination point and sit out until the termination point, And then you're a free agent. Bro, these contracts sounds like 1930s boxing contracts where like you're signing over lifetime earnings type deal. It's uh man, like. I had no idea. You're contracted into like, well, they, it's just well, the way they do it, man. It's like, they can terminate your contract pretty much whenever they want to, but you can never leave. Like they, they own you. Like they have the championship clause stuff. You have a title, you have to defend it. You have, you know, they, if you get injured and you can't take a fight, they put extensions on your contracts. Like there's a lot of. Look what's happening to Francis. I mean, he was the golden boy. Now he, he, yep. he hasn't even been a year or uh, I don't think it's been a year. Yeah. Not even a year. And he's already you push like back. You push back a little bit. He's, he's right. He could leave the sport of, of MMA right now today, take one boxing fight and make 10 times more money in that one boxing fight than he'll ever make in MMA. He's not wrong. He would. He could easily drop out. People will pay to see it. He'll make 15, 20 million dollars. Yeah. To like straight up to show. Like that's, Look at Jake Paul and Woodley. I mean, the dude got yes. a tattoo of another man so we can get a rematch. It's like crazy. I'll 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 pay sixty five dollars to watch uh, yeah. him fight Wilder. I don't care. Oh no doubt, no doubt. Well, I'm glad you're out there illuminating some of these topics because a lot of times you know these things you don't even hear about. And before, yeah, I they, you can't because when you have that monopoly, like you have a monopolistic system, like the 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 reporters they don't cover it. If they cover what's going on, they cover the BS. They don't get the they don't get the interviews anymore. They the email the emails from the from the promoter goes out to the managers not to let your guys talk to certain people anymore. And then ESPN's a news company, but they're involved in ownership. It's like the yep. news is supposed to be unbiased. It's all PR. It's all fluff. Right. Right. Damn. It's no, it's no different than you know watching like uh, the the president's uh, press secretary. Right. Right. Yeah. Same kind they're of not, thing. They're going to do the same fluff. It's the same. Well, we have a, a, just a few minutes left. John, I have a couple of questions from the audience. Rapid fire. We'll hit on John. You, you know, just the, the depth of your career, 19 years in MMA, you've fought and you know trained for GSP, but you've also coached the great Habib. How do you compare and contrast those two legends? Oh man. Uh, Khabib is just in your face he's going to come and maul you he's going to come forward uh and just pressure you and keep coming and keep putting pressure on you no matter how many times you fight him off and get back up or whatever he just keeps coming forward you know it's kind of like a zombie attack a zombie bear attack <laughs> uh and gsp is like all about timing he's got great timing he's very fast very uh explosive so like he's able to uh make you freeze, make you misstep, make you not see him. And uh, he's able to, to get easy takedowns because he's able to, to get you off balance when he attacks. And talk about the book you wrote on weight cutting and about the ego. How did those come about? Where can folks find those? Yeah. Uh, well, my failing upward death by ego is uh, supposed to be first in a series. I, I got a lot more writing to do with the other books. But I kept journals for about 17 years or more. I still have journals, but I'm not writing in them every day. Like back in the day, I was writing them almost every day, pretty much every day. So I shared some of that. There's some of my stuff from, from wrestling in college. And that was kind of like the, the, when I made the decision to start working hard, like, you know, I was like, I started using the journal to help categorize and log my workouts and hold myself accountable. 
So I share the uh, the journal with everybody and the, the stuff that I was thinking that time. It's a little embarrassing, but like I think there's a lot of learning you can you can go and get through by seeing what other people were going through and 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 going through at the time, seeing at the time. Uh, but and then I, I share the journals and then I write reflections kind of on everything that I was going through and thinking. And, and I love uh, your I got a lot more too. of those to do. The weight cut book is my system for how I've been making weight, like my whole career. My buddy Mo, he was at the last fight last week cut, and he's like, "Bro, you got to like write this down." I was like, "Cause he's helped other guys cut weight." And he's like, "I've never had anybody who like makes weight as easy as you do." It's like you know exactly how much you're losing. Like when you're in the sauna, you get out, you're like, "I bet that was a pound." Like <laughs> he's like, "You got to like write it down," and uh, so I did. So I got that made that available for people. And what are Never those? Miss weight again. What are those both called? Uh, failing upward, death by ego, and then the other one is the weight cut bible. And then, last but not least, Mister Fitch, could you please share a, a brief update on your podcast? I really think it's something special you're doing there. Yeah, I have John Fitch knows nothing. It's uh, Sunday nights, seven p.m. Uh, on the left coast, and I uh, I have a wide range of topics I talk about. A lot of it's geared towards like self-improvement, a lot of masculinity and man stuff. And, um, uh, you know, I, I help people and I counsel people in how to be better asshole. Say it again. I counsel and help people in how to be a better asshole. Why is that? How did that come about? Because there's a lot of people who, who are told to be nice guys and it's really unfulfilling and they want a better life. And you have to be a little bit of an asshole if you want to have a life that you want to live. What a great way to sign off. John Fitch, thank you so much for your time, my man. I appreciate it. Would love to have Thanks you back on us. at some point. Awesome, man. Good to talk to you. Take care, brother. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. This episode was presented by Quant Wrestling. Quant provides detailed analytics on the great sport of wrestling. Download the Quant app now in the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. The first two weeks are free, but if you use the discount code WCML, you'll get an additional two weeks free. That's Quant, Q-U-A-N-T, available in both the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. Quant Wrestling, a proud sponsor of Wrestling Changed My Life.